0: Revelation is a book that many people steer away from, a lot of churches don't talk about it and probably for good reason, there's a lot of symbolism in the book, it can be difficult to understand what those symbols mean, a lot of seminaries don't teach courses on Revelation and, and the end times and if we're being honest, for those who've been in the church for any length of time, there's kind of been a lot of weirdness that's kind of entered into that conversation too. A lot of conversations that probably shouldn't happen, a lot of date predicting that shouldn't be going on, blood moons, things like that, just, just all kinds of noise enters the conversation. And, and our tendency with all of that, I know it's been my tendency in the past is just say, then let's just ignore it, this is a bunch of garbage. But the truth is you can't ignore it. A couple reasons why. Number one, you may or may not know this, one-third of the Bible's prophecy, easily one-third of the Bible is prophecy. And to ignore Revelation is like saying, hey, I'm going to read a book, but I think I'll just skip the ending. You know what I mean? I don't think I want to know how it all turns out at the end. And so ignoring Revelation isn't going to be the answer. And we dive into Revelation, if we avoid it, we'll miss some incredible truths summarizing much of what we've already learned in the New Testament. Truths like the gospel. What what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we intend to, as Jesus said, take that gospel throughout the entire world? And sure enough, when we pull off Revelation chapter 14, we see these amazing verses. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. Every nation, tribe, language, and people. Praise the Lord, the gospel is going to permeate the earth. And he says it in a loud voice. Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And what's He say? Worship Him. Worship Him, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So right here, we see the eternal gospel proclaimed to the entire earth. And what is it? Well, if you have your worship guide today, this is going to be your first fill-in, and I encourage you to follow along with that. What's that first thing that it tells us? The eternal gospel is a call to worship the one true God. Not other gods, not idols, the one true God. And so then what's the great invitation that we see in the book of Revelation that we're going to kind of muddle through a little bit today? Because it can be a difficult topic and you can miss it. Well, Don talked about it when he was reading in Revelation 18, and it was verse 4. What's the great invitation? It says, I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people. Now, let's just make something clear right from the start here. Come out of her who? He's not talking to lost people here. He's saying to his church, come out of her. They've been caught in Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, and so you will not receive any of her plagues. And so when we open this section of Revelation, really Revelation 17 and 18 in this part, who is it that we're to be coming out of? Who is he calling us out of? It's Babylon. Babylon. He's calling us out of Babylon, but it's here that we have to take a couple steps backwards, of course, and ask the difficult question, who or what then is Babylon? What is it we're talking about in this part of the book of Revelation, and why is it important to me? And the reality is this conversation is bigger than I can truly dive into today and fully cover. But my hope is that I can whet your appetite and maybe we can have a little bit of fun diving into this. Maybe you won't be so scared of the book of Revelation as well. And I, my other hope is that I encourage you maybe in your private time this week to dive into Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 and, and learn more. I'll tell you, I'm working on a couple projects right now, and as soon as those are done, it's my intent to start a podcast, a weekly podcast, and we're going to dive into the end of times for the next year or two. My goal is to remove the clowns, the bozos, and the circus out of it, okay? To take the garbage out and ask the question, what does the Bible truly say about the end of times? Jesus spent an entire chapter or two talking about it, so clearly he thought it was important that we understand it. We cannot be ignorant of this. But to fully understand this thing called Babylon that we're talking about in Revelation 17 or 18, I need to even take a step further back and ask a question we've asked at at Radiant before, but I think it's good for us from time to time to continually remind ourselves of this. What was the primary message of Jesus? Now, the, when I ask that, I get all kinds of answers sometimes, I and mean, people will say, well, the primary message of Jesus is forgiveness, right? And I mean, the primary message of Jesus is love, right? And, and, and the truth is, yes, those are part of the message, but it may surprise you that was not the primary message of Jesus. When we ask ourselves what the primary message of Jesus is, the primary message of Jesus was kingdom. He spoke about it more than 96 times in just the first four Gospels alone. Everywhere he went, he preached the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In fact, in Luke 4.43, what does it say? Jesus says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. Why? That's why I was sent. Jesus was sent to proclaim the kingdom of God, and I get it. See, the problem is for a lot of Christians in a lot of other areas, when we think, oh, kingdom of God, their first thought is, oh, that's, that's heaven, that's that place I go to when I die, but if you land there, you're going to miss the message of Jesus Christ, because key to understanding the message of Jesus is to know, and we have believed this since the very beginning, it's built into some of our codes And some of the early beliefs that we stand by was the very idea that Jesus intends to come back. And when he comes back, he will reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem where he is king at center of what we believe. Jesus is coming back. Jesus intends to be king. God's kingdom will be here on earth. And the problem is, is for a lot of Christians, they get so wrapped up in getting out of here, they miss the message of revelation. Revelation isn't about getting us out of here. Revelation is about bringing heaven here. It's about bringing the kingdom to earth. And so we can miss the entire message on that. That's why we pray, by the way. Most of us know the Lord's Prayer. In, in Matthew 6, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus intends to reestablish his royal authority here on earth. That's why we're seeing a, we see a picture, as you read in Revelation, of the bride coming down to earth. It's about reestablishing that kingdom here. That's why Jesus talked about kingdom wherever he went. And the point of him talking about kingdom was to help us understand that he was comparing and contrasting two things constantly. There is the kingdom and the way of Christ, and there is the world and its ways of doing things. And according to Jesus, they were polar opposites from each other, two very different things with different agendas, two worldviews at battle for the hearts and minds of God's people on earth. There is the kingdom way, and there's the world's way. And constantly asking the question, which one are you in? And so throughout the New Testament, then, it shouldn't surprise us when we see language like this, whether it's from Paul or whether it's from Jesus or whether it's from the Apostle John. We see in Paul say in Romans 12, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus would tell his disciples, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. First John John, who wrote the letter, he also wrote the book of Revelation. says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Harsh words. But you can see through all these verses, there's a clear divide here. There is the way of Christ, the kingdom, and there is the way of the world. And they are two very different things. In Scripture, Babylon is mentioned over 260 times. There is only one other city and kingdom mentioned more, and it shouldn't surprise you. It's Jerusalem and Israel. But in Scripture, Babylon is the second most mentioned. And what we learn is the Bible is very much a tale of two cities. You have one city that was created to honor and serve God, Jerusalem, and another city who throughout history always serve to oppose God and His will and His way. It is a story of two cities. And part of understanding Revelation is to understand it's a story of two cities in here that are being compared and contrasted to each other. Two very different worldviews. And so let's back up and try to understand Babylon. Like I said, I don't have a ton of time today to fully go into it, but I hope today maybe I can connect some pieces together for you. After the flood... And we do believe in the great flood around here. Jesus' instructions to the people were to scatter throughout the earth and to multiply. But his people chose not to. They chose to gather in one place. And what was that place called? Babel. Babel where we get Babylon. The king was Nimrod. His very name means Rebellion they were going to create a tower that reached up to God. Why Josephus would tell us later, it was their intent to build a tower that was above the flood waters because what they were saying to God is you're not going to get us this time. It was rebellion. It is out of Babel that we know from historical documents the original false religions came from. Idol worship started there. The cults of temple And sexual immorality worship started there. Their religion was based on mysterious secret things that they did with the initiates that involved temples, and it involved temple prostitutes. It was a sexuality cult that came out of there. And so if you read in Revelation chapter 17, maybe in your own time this week, you'll see that there is a woman sitting on a beast. The beast represents empire, but the woman's called Babylon. However, in 17, she has an interesting name. She's called Mystery Babylon. In fact, she's called a harlot and a prostitute. It's referring back to this first Babylon. It's telling us, go back to that story. What do we learn? Well, Mystery Babylon, especially in chapter 17, represents religion. Especially the false religious systems that seek to control and lead people astray in the world. We have false religion. And yes, that false religion can find its way into Christianity too. Okay? Rome was often called Babylon. What we see is this is mystery Babylon from Romans 17. That doesn't answer our question on who Babylon is in Romans 18, though. So let's keep going. The second Babylon that we would see come onto the world stage would be right around 587 B.C. When Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon under the leadership of a king named Nebuchadnezzar. We often, maybe sometimes, de-emphasize just how big a deal it was, but it was upon Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that the line of David ended. There has not been a king on the Davidic line on the throne of Israel since. The next king that will be on the throne from the Davidic line, any idea who that might be? It will be Jesus. But since then, they've not had a king from the Davidic line, and their worship from there when they did come back together and build a temple did not include the Ark of the Covenant. For most scholars, they agree that this time of the destruction of Israel is what we call, and you'll come across this from time to time as you study the end times, the age of the Gentiles. That is where it began, is at that time. The story in the Bible doesn't always give us a, a complete view of what was going on with Nebuchadnezzar. It's there, but you have to really dig a little bit deeper. And, and so what's our clue that this is pointing back to Nebuchadnezzar, though? Well, whereas it was called Mystery Babylon in chapter 17, and chapter 18 it's called Babylon the Great. And we have to ask ourselves, was there ever a time Babylon went by that name, or we see that in Scripture, and oh boy, was there. As we go to Daniel chapter 4, we see the very words of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Is not this great Babylon? In many translations it said, is this not Babylon the great? Is this the great Babylon who built? I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Can you hear the arrogance in this? It's my will, my way. I did this. I get the glory in this story. A year later, God would show him who actually gets glory and who's actually in charge when he would confound his mind, drive him crazy, and put him in a field for seven years to eat the grass like an animal until he finally repented that there is only one true God in heaven. I would caution you about praying that prayer. The Babylonians, though, were an interesting people. They were very wealthy and powerful. They were the most powerful country in the world at the time. They were the world empire. It was the center of all trade, commerce. They had the finest luxury goods. And it's interesting, when they conquered a nation, they would do something unique. They would go in and they would find the the brightest and the best young people in that nation, and they would take them out of their country and take them back to Babylon. And the goal was to reprogram them. Say, well, that's impossible. That doesn't happen. Well, you have not been reading about China in the news then. Still going on today. What would they do? Well, they would take them away from their families. They would give them only Babylonian food, Babylonian clothing, and Babylonian housing. They would make them learn their language, make them read their literature. They would have them intermarry with their people only. They required them to learn about their religion and ultimately required them to work in their empire. What we learned about this Babylon is very different from the Babylon of chapter 17. The Babylon the Great of chapter 18 is a political power. Whereas the first one yielded religious power, the second one religious political power. And what do we know about political power? Well, he who has the politics has the finances, and he who has the finances is in control. It is a political and economic force at the end of times that we see. Chapter 3 of Daniel, we'll we'll see kind of an interesting part of how the story goes. We won't dive into it much today, but it's worth mentioning that in, by chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar had put a very large statue up. We don't know exactly what it was, but he demanded worship. It represented Babylon in some way. could have been a statue of himself. We just don't know. And he required everyone to bow to that. And for those who might know the story, there were three young men who refused to bow down to that statue. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But you know what we miss in that? It's really cool that three got up and stood against it. But you know what we can miss in that story? They brought thousands of Israelites to Babylon, and we hear no mention of them refusing to bow down. Did you catch that in the story? They had been assimilated. They had become Babylon, and that's the point I want to make. Don't miss this. The purpose of Babylon as an economic And a political force was to turn people into Babylonians. You know what that means? It means it it exists to turn them into them. That's their goal. That's why we often joke, you know, uh, it's the old saying, you know, don't send your kid to Rome and then complain when they come back Romans. You know what I mean? Babylon was a force. An ideal, a way of life. And they sought to impose that and reprogram the next generation with it. Jesus would refer to this as the world, the flesh, living by the senses. He had many different names for it. But what we're going to discover in, this, in the story of Revelation is when Jesus talked about the world, another word for it is Babylon. This is, again, the same old comparison between Babylon and the way of Christ. And I want to look real quick at just some differences between the two. See, so when we talk about Babylon, Babylon seeks power by the sword. But kingdom pe- people and citizens, they carry a cross. It's very different. Babylon wants to control behavior. That's at the core of this system and this force. It's a desire to control others, what they think, what they do, how they do it. However, the kingdom wants to set people free to live a transformed life. There's a very big difference between those two things. Babylon seeks to advance its politics, its religion, its ideologies, and that big word there, agendas. Because I got to warn you, anybody who's in control has an agenda. Just know it. You got to figure out what it is. The kingdom of God wants to replicate the love of Christ to all people at all times. That's our agenda. How can I show you Christ? Babylon seeks revenge and retaliation. You mess with us, we'll mess with you. And maybe twice as much. The kingdom forgives as we have been forgiven. We turn the other cheek. Our weapon is not war. Big one here. Babylon fights earthly battles. But I would remind you for kingdom people that our battle is against the authorities, the rulers, and the spiritual forces of evil in this world. That is who we fight. Two very different kingdoms, two very different agendas. And so what we learn in Revelation is Babylon is more than just a city. It represents a system of religion and politics that stands opposed to the way of Christ. Any system of religion and politics that stands opposed to the way of Christ. But as you listen to Don as he was reading that chapter, you could tell it's a system defined by its luxuries and its comforts. It entices people to engage in spiritual and sexual immorality. It's God at its core, idolatry, spiritual idolatry. And you say, what, what does that mean? Well, idolatry and idols are anything that keeps you from being focused completely on God in your worship. It is something that has your attention other than God, that keeps you from fully embracing the life that He is inviting you into. And the Bible says that when we chase after idol, idols, it calls it cheating, it's adultery. We're cheating on God when we do that with something else. And that's one of the big sins of Babylon. But hear me now, and I may just read this to get it out correctly. If you don't catch anything today, would you listen to this when it concerns Babylon, please? Because here is the problem with Babylon. It can be difficult to see it when you're living in it. And especially if you have become to accept that the way of Babylon is the correct way of life. you hear that? It can be difficult to understand Babylon when you're living in Babylon and when you have fully accepted its way of life. You won't see it. And you have to remember that empires, which is what Babylon is, they exist to consume, dominate, and enslave people. But it can be difficult when you are Babylon, or living in Babylon, to understand how your blessing from the empire of Babylon may be someone else's curse. You fail to see how your blessing has not been a blessing for somebody else. In fact, it may have even enslaved them. And we fail to understand when we're living in Babylon sometimes how it has corrupted our character and our soul, and especially those who may not not benefit from it. See, the picture we're given here is of people who are drunk. They are drunk on the wine of its iniquity, of its sexual immoralities, Of its greed. It opposes all things God. And the problem is the people of Babylon can't always see it because they're drunk on it. They're living on it. And therefore it requires an awakening. That's why you read in chapter 18 Come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Die to yourself. Surrender your will and be reborn in the kingdom of Christ. That's the great invitation. Come out of her. And we say, okay, we're at the end of our worship series here. And someone might just kind of think like, what in the world does this have to do with worship? Um, And so forth. And I want to tell you as we land the plane here very quickly. The key component to worship is holiness. What is holiness, though? It's an important definition to get a handle on. Holiness means we are called to be separated out from. When something is holy, it has been set apart for God's purposes. It is not a part of something else. It has been taken out of that. It is set apart for God's purposes. Purposes. And because it's been set apart, the other characteristic of holiness we have to grasp is it is meant to be pure. What purity means is it's unblended and not mixed. You can't take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and call that pure. You know what I mean? I can't mix two drinks together and call that pure. Purity means you have been called out and you are unmixed. And it begins with humility and surrender. And that's how I want to end this worship series. We've had some amazing weeks talking about worship and and engaging the postures, how to approach God and what is it. All of those things. But at the end of the day, worship is a call out of Babylon. Because if you struggle with engaging worship or fully stepping into worship or embracing worship, you have to understand, and I I just, I love you so much, I just got to be honest with you. One of the biggest reasons you may not be able to step fully into it and surrender is that you still have one foot in the kingdom and you have one foot in the world. You still have some Babylon in you. You're serving two masters. The Bible calls that double-mindedness. Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. Remember the eternal gospel we talked about there at the beginning. Fear God and worship Him. And since genuine worship requires purity and holiness, hear me on this. You can't claim to love Jesus and live like the devil. You can't have one foot in both kingdoms come out of her, my people. And so if you yearn to be closer with God and desire to worship Him, maybe you've got to ask yourself, is there still a part of me living in Babylon? Have I fully surrendered my will and my way to Christ's kingdom? Let's pray.